Okay, so once again, I've gotten really far behind on answering call-ins, so this will be, this and the next episode will be a call-in episode. I'm going to try to keep them shorter, so I'll do two episodes, I think. Um, the first few messages here, I'm not 100% sure. I feel like I may have replied back to them, so if I did, um, hopefully I will be consistent in what I say, uh, you know, just like you're supposed to in uh, rulings. <laughs> okay. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Great episode. The call-in episode. And yeah, that idea of protection from evil, it kind of changes things around. I do like your interpretation, not your interpretation, but your explanation. I like warriors being the centerpiece and what Chainmail does for them. Because when we look at all the tropes of this for these games, warriors were, well, not all of them. But for most of the tropes, warriors are the heroes. So I like keeping that up. But, you know, with spells like Protection from Evil, you know, those other characters can make a huge difference. And obviously they can fight on all those other tables other than Fantastic Combat, so, or Fantasy Combat. Anyhow, great episode. Really appreciate it. You've got me writing in the margins of my copy of your rules now, so good job. So that was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Um, yeah, I think that, well, you know, if legend has it to be correct, I feel like D&D uh, history changes every time somebody comes up with a new book, but uh, people talk about how Gygax wanted the warriors to be uh, the heroes, and effectively as the editions progressed, at least the ones he was part of, he kind of weakened, for lack of a better word, the magic users to kind of balance things. But I think what happened was, as soon as you went from Chainmail to the alternative combat system, you really hurt the warriors. And if you look at Chainmail, um, the fighters are so powerful compared to the rest, you know, in fighting, which I think is the way it should be. So, um, yeah, I'm all about it. And I'm really enjoying uh, playing fighters more now than I ever did when using Chainmail. Hey Daniel, this is Robert, also known as Menion, just calling to ask whether the chainmail rules that you've devised uh, for use with OD&D are equally uh, usable with uh, something like swords and wizardry, or whether there needs to be some kind of uh, adaptation or modification at some stage. Um, it's a really simple question, and probably very obvious, but it, um, yeah, I'm kind of curious what you've ha- you have to say on that. All right, anyway, take care. Talk to you later. Uh, that was Rob, also known as Minion, uh, from Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi. You know, it's funny, when I first heard this question, so I'm so slow to reply, I thought, well, yeah, of course you could use it with anything, but you know what OD&D has that the other, um, no other system has is the fighting categories. So, you know, man, uh, two men, you know, one man plus one, you know, hero, stuff like that. So... If you were to use it with the other systems, you would still need OD&D at least to kind of line that up or, I guess, make up your own. Because um, that's really the problem, right, is that, that you need those stats. Which is why I believe, I didn't actually fully look into it, but I think like Druid and some of the later classes that were added in like Blackmore and stuff, they don't have those distinctions. So you wouldn't be able to straight up use those with the um, with the Chainmail system. You could use Thief because that does. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think the rest of them do. So if you were going to do that, you'd have to figure out your own uh, scaling there or use one of the ones that's there. Hi, Daniel. This is Nick. I wanted to thank you for taking the time to make that episode, uh, addressing all my uh, comments and questions. Uh, Super entertaining and helpful for me. Uh, Again, I've really enjoyed playing around with 
Chainmail and your uh, work on the podcast and on that document have been immensely helpful. So thanks again. Uh, looking forward to more episodes. I'm going to keep playtesting and and messing around with it, finding cool things like that protection from evil, uh, how cool that was. So I'll keep in touch, probably send some more questions uh, after I get a chance to play a little bit more. And uh, hopefully we can keep in touch. Later. So if you missed that episode, uh, Nick had played uh, some with his wife and had a whole bunch of questions about Chainmail, so I kind of made an entire episode about it, which is pretty cool. Uh, so go back and listen to that one if you haven't. But as it turns out, um, he called back in with a bunch more, so I'm about to look at them now, and that'll probably be the rest of this episode. We'll be answering his uh, questions, or at least listening to his, his experiences. Hi, Daniel. This is Nick, your Chainmail fan. I just had a couple more observations and questions about Chainmail. I've continued running my one-on-one campaign with my wife, and we played another fun session. So the last time that we played, she and her companion, the crossbow henchman, had battled a werewolf who uh, took down the crossbowman in troop combat and then was uh, defeated and driven back when the cleric cast protection from evil and used a torch Uh, to burn him, which I ruled uh, that fire would act similar to silver, and basically the werewolf would defend his light foot. So she was able to get a hit in with the torch and drive the werewolf away once the werewolf realized that that she couldn't uh, attack the cleric because of the protection from evil. She was unable to hurt her. So that was kind of the wrap-up from the last session. And the henchman was taken down in troop, uh, and the cleric was able to revive him with cure light wounds, uh, kind of negating the fatal wound that he received. Now, I think it's interesting that I was talking before about fantasy combat and lower level characters. These were level two. Uh, the cleric was level two and the henchman was level one fighting man. So the interesting thing is when I'm looking at your monster listings in your document, I see that things, some things which are you know, can be battled on fantasy combat, can also, you know, be fought with troop, although they don't have an armor class listed. So that would be the werewolf, for example. Now, my interpretation of that is that you can't fight a werewolf in man-to-man combat, obviously. But you can fight it in troop, although it fights as four, you know, heavy foot or whatever, so it's pretty, pretty hard to kill. And that was how I ruled that. And the henchman was taken down in troop, uh, and the... Cleric was able to revive him with cure light wounds, uh, kind of negating the fatal wound that he received. Now, I think it's interesting that I was talking before about fantasy combat and lower level characters. These were level two. Uh, the cleric was level two and the henchman was level one fighting man. So the interesting thing is when I'm looking at your monster listings in your document, I see that things, some things which are, you know, can be battled on fantasy combat can also, you know, be fought with troop, although they don't have an armor class listed. So that would be the werewolf, for example. Now, my interpretation of that is that you can't fight a werewolf in man-to-man combat, obviously. But you can fight it in troop, although it fights as four, you know, heavy foot or whatever. So it's pretty, pretty hard to kill. And that was how I ruled that. Right. So, uh, right, the werewolf. So that's great with the cure light wounds. That worked. I think that's the first time I've heard anybody use any curing spells in troops. So that's actually perfect. Um, as far as the, the, the lycanthrope, well, you know, specifically the werewolf, if you were to fight them in man-to-man, it would only be, I would say, if they were 
um, you know, in human form. And in that case, you would just use whatever weapon they happen to have or whatever armor they happen to be wearing. That's how I'd rule that. Uh, I think a werewolf uh, in some kind of uh, form that's not a man, like either the wolf or the hybrid form, you'd just use the uh, the armored foot and the... Uh, and, and you can actually look back at the document and see, you know, just cross-reference, right? We see what armor class number equals armored foot. So you can just go back and say, okay, well, if armor classes two and three are armored foot, then... If I don't have an armor class listed and they defend his armored foot, then their armor class is either two or three. Uh, I don't know if two or three is accurate. I think it is. I'm going off the top of my head, so I don't have the book in front of me. But uh, that's how I would do that. I would just go backwards. I think the reason why some of them I don't have armor classes listed is because they weren't originally listed in OD&D. And that's probably because in the monster description itself it listed an armor class. I just didn't necessarily think that it was needed, but uh, perhaps I will go back and add those in. Um, if they are listed in OD&D uh, Book 2, I'll have to go check to see if they are. Ah, yes, sure enough, I checked, and um, on page 14 of Monsters and Treasure, there are armor classes for the lycanthropes, so maybe I'll add those in. Although I do feel like in man-to-man, if, you know, I, I'm assuming they're counting these armor classes as if, um, you know, as if they're in werewolf form, not when they're wearing armor. And I think if they're wearing armor, I probably would um, I probably would just have them go by that armor class. So you could do it either way, I guess. But it's probably worthwhile to list it as a basic idea. Because, you know, for instance, Werebear is listed as armor class 2, I see here. Which, to me, would be a little bit odd. Because um, that means every Werebear is walking around in plate mail armor when they're in human form. And I don't think that would necessarily be the case. That being said... I think it's a good point, and um, if I don't add it to the list, I, maybe I'll put a note in there so that it's more clear for people that uh, essentially, right, they don't fight with weapons when they're in any kind of form except for human, and when they fight in human form, they will be treated as whatever they are, which, you know, makes it, I think that it fits the folklore better, too, because I think if a werewolf is in human form, you can typically kill them normally, so I think that would be the case in, in those situations. So the henchman was healed and he recovered from his uh, wound that he suffered from the werewolf, although he and the cleric both now know that he's infected with lycanthropy and in three to four weeks will turn into a werewolf himself. So that's sort of the quest right now is to find a way to remove that curse from him. So they set off and they tracked the werewolf back to her lair, which was a little evil shrine to the fertility goddess Asherak. And I built a little uh, scenario on our table little room for the shrine and they found the uh, burned werewolf now in human form with a half burned face recovering around a, an evil well with her band of 13 half men half monsters which were orcs basically and they uh, decided the two of them to lay siege to this little shrine and try to destroy them meanwhile I, I had leveled them up so we now have a level three cleric and level so we started this battle decided to use troop combat mostly so that we could try it out with the band of uh, 13 orcs who counted as one unit. So the crossbowman had positioned himself uh, up on a roof and shooting down through a hole. So the first round, they surprised the orcs, and he got to fire with his crossbow, uh, killing two of the orcs. And then the uh, orcs charged at the cleric who was in the doorway, mounted on her horse, which we also thought was fun. Interestingly, it kind of made no distinction in terms of troop combat and defense between her armored foot and light horse, which I thought was cool, but it, being on a horse did 
make her more powerful because now she's attacking as light horse, which is better than heavy foot. So it was kind of cool the way that modeled the uh, tactical or the offensive superiority of being mounted. And this is where some of my uh, questions come up and I made some rulings and I want to see if you agree with them. So we had uh, sort of a bottleneck scenario where the cleric was in a doorway on a horse uh, or she was just outside the doorway and the orcs were storming at her in a group and a mob of, I guess there were 11 of them at this point. Um, the thing that I ruled was that, okay, so maybe two men can stand side by side in this doorway and they can kind of fight in two ranks deep. So I had four orcs who were able to engage in melee against the cleric. Now, interestingly, that was not enough to actually kill her, which is kind of a cool feature because they are getting one die for every two men. So they have two dice and she's three hit die and needs three hits to be killed. So I thought that was kind of neat the way that if I rule that only four orcs can engage from this unit of 11, uh, that they couldn't possibly hurt her. Okay, so I'm going to break in here. I actually haven't listened to everything, so we'll see if what happens next. But uh, to answer that question, yeah, I would have uh, basically done it the same way. That's, you know, I think that chain, when you're fighting in the troop combat and chainmail in general, um, strategy is super important. You know, it, it's a, I don't want to say it's, you can't do it theater of the mind because that's how I've been running it, but, you know, you definitely want to use strategy and these things matter. And if you were actually playing chainmail, um, they would need to be touching in order to attack you. So, yeah, if, you, if you've got a bottleneck, then you can do that. And sure, just like where there was potential, right, with no silvered weapon or without the fire, she wouldn't have been able to hurt the werewolf. Well, in this case, she's the werewolf, right? She's powerful. She's a cleric. They can't hurt her. And there's a few ways. I'm, I'm curious. Well, I'll find out when I listen to the rest how you did it. But at that point, you could even just, you know, well, you may, I'd probably have check morale maybe, but... Um, you could even just have her narrate how she takes them out if she's going to keep that same process up. Um, I don't think you need to go through all the numbers, although it is really fun to roll a lot of dice. So, you know, it could be fun to do that as well. Or, or the orcs could change their strategy as well, right? They could throw weapons if there's enough room. They could also, you know, use fire to scare the horse. So I think, you know, being that this is still OD&D, it's cool to be able to make rulings on how things will play out. But yeah, having two ranks, assuming they have spears or whatever, is probably exactly what I would have done. And if they can't, um, uh, affect her, then they can't hurt her. And then you can literally just, uh, you know, either have her attack that round and don't even bother rolling their dice, or you can roll them just for the heck of it. Because, uh, you know, rolling dice is always fun. And this brings up the other issue was now we have this unit of 11 orcs, only four of whom I've ruled are engaged in melee. Now, what does this mean for the uh, missile combat from the henchman who's behind them with a crossbow. The question came up, can he fire into the unit of orcs uh, targeting the ones who are not engaged in melee, or does the fact that the unit is engaged in melee with the cleric sort of protect the entire mob from missile fire? Uh, I ruled that it didn't, and that just it would be fun if he could still fire at them from the rear, uh, but I'm interested to see what you would rule about that. The other thing I did was that as movement phases, as we went into subsequent rounds of combat, I allowed more of the orcs to kind of squeeze through the doorway and surround the cleric so that eventually six or seven of them could start attacking her and actually have a slim chance of killing her. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> um, I think technically, if you were going to be a, 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 like a rules lawyer on it, I would think that the crossbow could not shoot into the... The group, but because at least the first round where they're really bottlenecked back, 
I would say that it would probably be okay. Um, if there was like, let's say, six orcs and only four could attack, I would say no. But with that huge number, um, you know, it only less than half of them, almost a third of them, right, or, or only about a third of them are able to attack. I think that that was totally fine. But, uh, oh, that's pretty cool. They were able to move around uh, and surround her. That's pretty cool. Um, I know that it's man-to-man, -man, and this is where things can get a little bit, <laughs> you know, messy, I think, in the chainmail thing, if you're going to switch back and forth. I mean, you don't normally want to do man-to-man -man in these situations. But man-to-man -man does have rules for, for unhorsing and stuff. So you could have, uh, you know, possibly, what I might have done was said something like, there's so many, they're going to try to unhorse you and, and figure out a way that they might be able to do it. Um, you know, I'm not sure. If I wanted to add more drama to it, uh, that kind of thing might have been the case. Um, but who knows, right? So there you go. So I started saying, you know, you could have just narrated it, but it looks like you, the combat continued because there was more options for the orcs. And, I mean, who knows? Maybe they could have went off after the crossbowmen too, even though they were shooting through a hole in the roof. Maybe some of them grab a table and, you know, protect the group or, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think there's lots of fun narrative stuff that can happen, even in the troop section of the combat. But I, I definitely really like uh, where this is going. Um, and I'm glad you really enjoyed the ODND because I, I really love playing it. I, I think it's it's really refreshed my uh, my love of, of RPGs. Not that I don't love playing the other games, but whenever I sit down to play it, it just feels like a fresh new game. So it was quite fun. And between the missile attack from the rear and the mounted cleric with her morning star engaging in melee with the orcs, they were able to whittle them down over, I think, three or four, maybe even five rounds of combat until there were just a few remaining and they broke and fled. Then she went to pursue them on horseback, subduing one as a captive while the three survivors uh, scattered and fled off into the moors to report this, uh, this atrocity to their evil high priest, who's the one in charge of this territory. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, half-burned werewolf now in human form had been slain with a crossbow, or so they think, because actually she's going to uh, regenerate and escape and become a werewolf again in the future. Now I was feeling generous in terms of treasure at this point and so even though it was only a small band of orcs, you know less than 30, I ruled that this was their lair and that we could have a treasure roll. So we rolled the treasure type D from the OD&D books and got uh, a cool magic item which I decided would be on the uh, dead werewolf or the temporarily dead werewolf's body and that it would be a plus one ring of protection. Uh, so this brings up questions of how to use that. It seems clear to me in man-to-man -man and fantasy that what it does is subtracts one from your opponent's role. Uh, in troop, I think the way I would rule it is that it would be a minus one penalty to the uh, attacker, the one who's attacking the one with the ring, and that it would be a minus one from the highest die rolled during a round of melee combat. I think that's probably the best interpretation of how that would work in troop. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm always up in there about the layer thing. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't always have to be the full amount. As long as it's, you know, somewhere around half-ish, I usually go with the layer treasure. And sometimes I'll just cut it down a little bit if, if it's like, if somehow I roll really high. But, um, oh, that magic ring, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, that sounds like a good way to interpret it. Some of these things are going to be up in the air you know, because they're not going to directly translate. But I think minus one from the, uh, from a roll against them could be cool. The other way you could do it, which would probably make it more powerful, is maybe bump up the, uh, the 
the level of protection the person has, you know. So, like, if they were heavy foot, maybe you allow them to be armored foot, something like that. But I think that makes it more powerful, so it kind of depends on how you, how you want to play magic in your world. Um, I think the subtract one from the highest die roll is probably the, uh, the, the best way to go. And, you know, to make it kind of powerful but not overly powerful. And, of course, that also sets yourself up where, essentially, you know, you got somebody who's a little bit higher level, like the cleric, right, with three hit dice... Now they're essentially probably going to need to hit her with four hits in order to take her down, which is going to make her very, very powerful if she has, if she wears it, or the henchman even if he's a third, you know, has, takes three dice. So, yeah, I think um, once you get up a little bit, I mean, the the game allows for, you know, big attacks against the player characters because from from you know minion type creatures because of the fact that uh, they become so powerful. But of course, a uh, a heavy hitting creature will still take down a third level character pretty easily and of course magic will as well. So yeah, it sounds like a pretty awesome uh, session and uh, beginnings of a really, really fun story and campaign. So that's my report and my few uh, more observations. Thanks again for recording these podcasts. I've been really enjoying them as I said before. I've also been watching some of the actual plays. uh, The ones with Andy Goodman and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Higgins are, are really quite entertaining. I, I love the role play elements in that adventure. So keep it up. Uh, I'm going to keep messing around with Chainmail and uh, see how much more combat we can get into. I really want to get a group of lawful men at arms to kind of become a fighting force for this cleric so they can really get into some mass battles next time. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hey Daniel, my name is Arlen Walker. I do the podcast Live from Pelham's Wasteland and the YouTube channel Live from Pelham's Wasteland. And I am uh, on my phone right now actually, so I apologize if the audio isn't great. But I wanted to call in and say I've really been enjoying your uh, podcast and YouTube channel. I, I think I discovered your YouTube channel a little while ago and then your podcast uh, uh, more recently than that. Um, but I wanted to a say hi and then I wanted to also ask because I have been listening from the start um, you've been talking a fair bit about using um, chainmail and ODD together and some of the ways in which that works out and I wanted to ask about a couple of different games that I thought if you had not uh, looked at or seen or anything like that that you might be interested in and I'm about to run out of time Sorry, I have a habit of sending long messages or lots of messages, as the case may be, on Anchor. Um, anyway, what I was getting at is that there are a couple of games that I was thinking of that you might be interested in looking at. Uh, one of them is a personal favorite of mine, so there's a game called The Riddle of Steel, which is uh, kind of hard to get nowadays, although there are a couple of sort of retro clones of The Riddle of Steel that are much easier to get a hold of. Um, Blade of the Iron Throne and Song of Swords and Sword and Scoundrel are all available on DriveThruRPG and they all use a very similar um, core mechanic and, and resolution system and particularly around combat, which is where the Riddle of Steel is really um, special in my opinion. I mean, there's, there's another really cool element of it that has to do with how characters advance and the way that they gain Okay, so that cleared out about <laughs> half the messages I had. I got a whole bunch from Arlen Walker, live from Pelham's Wasteland. 
Um, he is uh, recommending uh, some different game systems that I might be uh, interested in based on my, uh, my chainmail fascination, as it would be. Um, so I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you probably will be as well. I think there's enough messages there, and also I want to take time to look uh, at uh, some of these games he's talking about, if I can find them, uh, so that it's probably going to be a whole, uh, whole another episode. I'll try to have that out over the weekend. I'm sorry, Arlen and, <laughs> and Nick, that it's taken me so long to answer these uh, these questions sometimes I get wrapped up in different things by the way I'll also point out that Nick now has a uh, podcast OSR Buddies I think it's called um, anyways I will put the link in the show notes so you guys can go over and follow him he's got a couple of unboxing uh, episodes up there so far so uh, if you have made it this far I appreciate everybody listening and uh, sticking with me even though I am pretty sporadic with these things and um, yeah uh, as I mentioned to Jason just recently over at Nerds RPG Variety Cast, uh, I think Chainmail will be a great way to do a do a Robin Hood campaign. So um, I'm thinking there's going. I'm doing work already working on my first hack of my hack, uh, Chainmail Men in Tights. So look forward to that. <laughs>